Children are dismissed to junior church at this time. Wait, there. Children are dismissed to junior church at this time. And I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 6. And those with the sermon notes, don't look at them yet. Because here's a test first. And you're ruining the test. If you have looked at them, and <laughs> don't answer the question. Anybody can shout at the answer to these questions. How long did it take Noah to build the ark? Long time. He said what? 100 years. Any other ideas? Any other thoughts? 120, somebody said 120. You know, the Bible does not specifically say how long it took Noah to build the ark. And when Noah is first mentioned in Genesis 5.32, he is 500 years old or young. When Noah enters the ark, he's 600 years old. So that's why some think 100 years. The time it took to build the ark would depend how much time passed between Genesis 6.14, when God commanded Noah to build the ark, and Genesis 7.1, when, God, when uh, God commanded Noah to enter the ark. Some scholars teach it took Noah 120 years to build the ark based on Genesis 6.3 which says, you know, the, uh, it does mention 120 years. I think that means that God is shortening lifespans at that point. Others say it took 100 years old based on, 100, 100 years based on Noah's age in Genesis 5.32 and his age in Genesis chapter 7, verse 6. But it's not specifically mentioned. How long was Noah on the ark? No, 40 days and 40 nights is how long it rained and water came out of the ground. Any other thoughts? How long was Noah in the ark, on the ark? He said 400. Somebody said 400. Any others? Don't you like these pop quizzes? Noah entered the ark in the 600th year of his life on the 17th day of the second month. That says that in Genesis 7, 11 through 13. Noah left the ark on the 27th day of the second month of the following year, Genesis 8, 14 through 15. Therefore, assuming a lunar calendar of 360 days, Noah was on the ark for approximately 370 days, so very close to 400. 370 days on the ark. How many people were on the ark? Eight. Anybody have any different idea? Eight. That's a clear one. According to Genesis chapter 6 through 8, Noah, his wife, Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives were on the ark. Therefore, there were eight people on the ark. Now, here's a really hard one. Who is Noah's wife? <laughs> Mrs. Noah. I heard Mrs. Noah. <laughs> what? Joan of Ark, right? Joan of Ark was Noah's wife. Joan of Ark. That's another one. The Bible nowhere specifically gives us the name or identity of Noah's wife. There is a tradition that she was Nema from Genesis 4.22. While possible, this is not explicitly taught in the Bible. Considering you did not have time to study, you all passed your pop quiz today. Um, you know, we're continuing this trek through Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And today we continue in the flood narrative. And we'll continue the flood narrative uh, following Resurrection Sunday in a few weeks. Today my theme is the significance of Genesis, coming judgment, but the ark of promise. And we're going to look at verses uh, from Genesis 6, 13 through chapter 7, verse 10. We're not going to read that whole section. We're going to look at a few verses and the theme, coming judgment, but the ark of promise. God is bringing judgment, but the ark of promise. And you're going to see similar themes 
and come out in each of these sermons on the flood narrative. So first we see coming judgment. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 13 and verse 17, we see coming judgment. God is bringing the flood of water. God is bringing the flood of water. You know, last week we began this section, and in last week's message, we talked about how the world was so depraved, yet Noah was righteous. The world was so fallen, so depraved, yet Noah was righteous. Look at verse 13, chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God says to Noah, I'm going to repeat it one more time. I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. With the, with the earth. God is going to destroy all living creatures that have the breath of life along with the earth. The earth is filled with violence. God is making an end of all the flesh. God is going to flood the whole world. This is all about the coming judgment, the coming judgment. In the next several verses, uh, God gives Noah detailed instructions on how to build the ark. Detailed instructions on how to build the ark. Some would question about the whole world. God, some would question how the whole world will be, would be flooded. I want to emphasize a few things right here. One is that we continue to see the emphasis that the earth was filled with violence. We can continue to see the emphasis on the depravity, the complete depravity of humanity. Now, that's a theme that's been coming through the last two or so weeks. You know, they've been living very long. They're thinking up new ways to sin. There's a, they, they had an easier life at that point. But notice the link between humanity and the earth. God says, I will destroy them, humanity, with the earth. One source reads, in light of some defenders of a global flood have suggested that pre-flood geography differed from today's geography. This is answering the question, how does the whole world get flooded? So some, some think pre-flood geography differed. Specifically, they suggest that Earth's landscape was flatter in the pre-flood era, thus requiring less water to flood, and that the violent flood created many of today's geographical and geological features. Others take a different approach, suggesting that pre- and post-flood geography is largely now present on Earth, and that by an unknown mechanism, Earth's quantity of water has greatly diminished after the flood. Another source reads, though some claim that the flood was a localized event restricted to the ancient Near East, the text makes it clear, the Bible makes it clear that this was a worldwide event. Now listen to this. Three times in this passage, the words all flesh appear. The phrase occurring 33 times elsewhere in the whole Hebrew Bible. Each time all flesh refers to all living creatures, both human and animal. Every time we see all flesh in other parts of the Hebrew Bible, it's referring to all flesh, both human and animal. And we see that three times in this flood narrative. The universal scope of the flood is further emphasized by the latter reference to the water covering all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens. 
as well as God's promise to never again destroy every living thing with a flood. So we see an emphasis on all flesh everywhere. We see an emphasis on the whole, the, 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 the flood covering the whole world. So God is destroying all flesh. Notice that specification. All flesh in which is the breath of life. God is destroying all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth should would perish, shall perish. Look at verse 17. God says, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth. To destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. In verse 18, God is still speaking, and this is important. And starting in verses 18 through 19, in chapter 7, verse 1, we see the Ark of Promise. God is bringing judgment. And now we see the Ark of Promise. But... God says, but I will establish my covenant with you. Who is the you? You can, you can speak. I, God says, but I will establish my covenant with you. Who is the you? Noah. He's talking to Noah. God is saying in the previous verses, God's going to destroy all flesh under the heaven, but I will establish my covenant with you. And he says, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. God is going to destroy all flesh. That's coming judgment, but we have the ark of promise. By the way, in Genesis chapter 1, Verses 1 and 2, we see that God created the heavens and the earth. God created time, space, and matter. Then we see God start to organize creation in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. If God created water and God put the water here to begin with, why do we have to question that God could have enough water to flood the earth if that's his goal to flood the earth? Sometimes we sit around and we argue or Satan tempts us with questions. And doubts are not bad as long as we look into the answers, okay? And, 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 and we're asking the wrong questions. We're, we're really doubting God. You know that another one people ask about is the great fish in Jonah. The great fish. Some say it's a whale. It doesn't say whale. It says a great fish. But, you know, if you look at the passage at the end of Jonah chapter 1, it says God appointed a great fish. For all we know, God might have put that fish there just for that time and then took the fish back away. God appointed the great fish. And if God wants to flood the earth with water and he created the water just six chapters before this, God can do that. Now, maybe it was through the earth being flatter before, which I generally believe. Maybe he added water and then took it away. It doesn't matter. God is the creator. God can do that. There is something called the great unconformity. I have pictures about, of this if you ever want to see it. The great unconformity. That means all across the world, all across the earth, there is a difference in strata at a certain point in the rock. 
They see it all across the world. If you dig down deep or look at the Grand Canyon, look at different places, we see a difference in strata at different places, which is evidence for the flood. We see many other different things, evidence of a quick catastrophe, of fossils, of fish, undigested with the fossil of another fish within the fish. That means they died very rapidly, very quickly. We also have fossils of uh, um, many different things like that. I was going to go on, but we'll just move on. There, are many, there, there is archaeological evidence and other things related to the flood, but God created, God appoints things. God can do that. It's nothing for us to question. So we see coming judgment in the flood, and we see the ark of promise. You know, God saying, I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and you will come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives, with you and of every living thing of all flesh, and, and you shall bring two of every sword in the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. This is powerful. The world is a hot mess. The world is in a state of fallen depravity. God is going to judge the world. But here we see God's great grace. God is going to save a family. This is God's grace. God is going to save a family. By the way, it's something I didn't put in the notes. But, you know, right here we see God tell Noah to bring two of everything into the ark. And later we'll see they came to him, they came to Noah. And then in Genesis 7, of certain animals, certain clean animals, God has Noah take seven so that they can make sacrifices after the flood. That's not a contradiction. It's just saying the general rule is two, but of certain clean animals, you're going to take seven for sacrifices after the flood. So, you know, many times we focus on the judgment, but not the saving act of God. God is judging the world, but God is also saving. He's saving Noah, and he's saving Noah's family. You know, God would have been just to judge the whole world and be done with it, but he saved Noah's family. In saving Noah's family, he provided life for us and salvation for us. If Noah's family was not saved, there would be no more humanity and no Savior. In saving Noah's family, we have the possibility for a Savior And later on, through Noah's descendants, we do have the Savior, Jesus, who came, died on the cross for our sins, and was resurrected. So God makes a covenant with Noah. This is the first occurrence of the word covenant in the Old Testament. There were two basic kinds of covenants in the ancient Middle East. One was the parity covenant. A parity covenant is a covenant that equals made with each other. Now, could God make a parity covenant with Noah? Is Noah equal with God? No, absolutely not, right? We do see the parity covenant. Examples would be Abraham and Abimelech. They made a parity covenant. Isaac and Abimelech, they made a parity covenant. Jacob and Laban, they made a parity covenant. But the second type of covenant is called a a suzerainty. I always have trouble saying it. Suzerainty covenant. Suzerainty covenant, which is one that a superior king made with an inferior vessel. God is superior. He's making the covenant with the inferior, which is Noah. Later, we see this type of covenant with Abraham. God is superior. Abraham is inferior. And they make this suzerainty covenant as well. Now look at Genesis chapter seven, verse one. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Noah is righteous. 
God is saving Noah. How often we thumb our nose at God saying, why do you do this? Why do you do this? When the answer right here is that all the world was so sinful, they were so depraved, and God is stepping in to intervene. And in intervening, he is also saving a family so that humanity will continue and so that we could even be here today and so that we can have salvation today. And now... Verse 1 has this important note. The Lord declares that Noah alone has been righteous before God during this time. Noah alone has been righteous before God during this time. This does not mean that Noah was sinless. No one has ever been sinless except for Jesus. This means that Noah's patterns of behavior, his daily walk was following the Lord. Notice this verse says, Noah alone has been righteous before the Lord during that time. Or it could say that generation. It is specifying that day and age. During that day and age, Noah alone had patterns of life following after God. So we have coming judgment, but we also have the ark of promise. God noticed Noah. The ESV study Bible shares God promises in a covenant to save Noah prefiguring the new covenant in Christ by which we receive eternal salvation. Noah was a type pointing to Jesus someday who will bring salvation to everyone. Noah is referenced in the New Testament. Let's look at a few. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. If he, thus God, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So there, right there, God preserved Noah, yet God did bring a flood. And that's there in Second Peter in the New Testament. Another passage in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, does not reference Noah, but does reference the flood. In that passage, it says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged, that means flooded, with water and perished. So right there, we see the flood another time mentioned towards the latter part of the New Testament. That means that if we dismiss certain things from the Bible... If we do the Thomas Jefferson thing, which is to cut miracles and things like that out of the Bible, it doesn't just tamper with this part of the Bible. It tampers with other parts as well. Let's make some applications. Do we recognize that God is the just judge and not us? Do we surrender to God? In Psalm 51, we have David's prayer of repentance after he was confronted with the sin to Bath- with Bathsheba. Do we surrender to God in a way that, like David did in Psalm 51 or Psalm 32, do we surrender to God? Do we surrender to God like Revelation 4, verses 8 through 11, where the elders and beasts in the, in the book of Revelation are casting their crowns before the Lord, constantly falling down and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Do we surrender to God? Or do we try to judge God? You know, God will provide salvation for Noah and his family. We must understand that in this, God is providing a way for future salvation for all humanity. Through Noah's descendants, God will provide the Savior. 
In saving Noah, God provided salvation for humanity. Do we obey God as Noah did? In Genesis 6, and 7, verse 5, it says Noah did as the Lord commanded him. God gives Noah these instructions to build the ark, and Noah obeys. Don't you wish you could have seen those conversations? Isn't it some comedian? I think it's Bill Cosby said, God is speaking to Noah. I want you to build an ark. And Noah's going to say, what's an ark? He had to build this thing, you know? God gives him some descriptions and he goes to work. He obeyed. He didn't say that's too difficult for me. He obeyed. Do we obey as Noah did? When God calls us to, calls us to do something, will we obey? Some of you think, well, 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 God hasn't called me to do anything miraculous like Noah. And that's true. Probably. I mean, maybe God's called you to build an ark, but probably not. Maybe God's called you to do something amazing, miraculous. Possibly. How do you know what God called you to do? Well, first, start out every morning in the word of God. And start out every morning in prayer. Spend time in Sunday school and small groups and and midweek Bible study. And the most clear thing God speaks to us is through his word. And he says it in his word, he's calling you to do it. It might be Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ has forgiven you. That could be really hard in some cases. God calls us to do it. Will we obey God's word? Ephesians 4, 7, uh, 17 through 32 is all about the new covenant community, the church. Will, will we strive to follow God's word and, and obey him in these passages in the New Testament? Colossians 3, 1, set your mind on things above. Oh, what about Philippians 2, 14? Do all things without grumbling and complaining. That's right there in, 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 in scripture. God's calling us to do that. Just like Noah obeyed God, we have things to obey God with. Uh, Philippians 2, 3, and 4, consider others more important than yourself look out for the needs of others before your own Matthew 20 19 through 20 go into all the world and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit how much do we care about the gospel that's something God commanded us to do Ephesians uh, uh, 4 I've been like slowly making my way there I mean be angry and do not sin don't let the sun go down on your anger Give no opportunity to the devil. It seems like the longer we let our sin, let, let our anger, the longer we let our anger simmer, the more likely sin's going to develop. Give no opportunity to the devil. That's giving the devil an opportunity. But verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather he labor. God calls us to labor, to work. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to, to those who hear. That's something God commands us to do. Don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but edification. And then it says, right after that verse, it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It's kind of like when we, give, when we have corrupting talk, it's grieving the Holy Spirit of God. By him you're sealed. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Then it's be kind to one another, tenderhearted, 
forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. Those are things that God commands us to do. Now, in your daily devotion time, God may call you to something else. He may call you to go serve at the rescue mission or go somewhere else. And, And we're called to obey just like God commanded Noah to obey. Do we desire to be righteous as Noah was? Do we want to try to pursue God, to be righteous? I pray that we do. Noah was righteous, Noah obeyed God. You know, it's significant that in Scripture, wisdom, wisdom is often associated with a path, a path. Are you going in the right direction? Are you veering off the path? Do you know where you are on the map? What's your compass? At the end of the day, wisdom is less about information than orientation. Wisdom is less about information than orientation. All the, geographical, all the geographic data points in the world are useless if we have no sense of north. Wisdom is about orientation, being on the right path, taking the narrow path. All of us wander in whichever nomadic direction our hearts choose until we submit to the authority of God's good compass. He alone, God alone, illuminates the path of wisdom. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, and thus wanders aimlessly through the desert. The wise man, by contrast, lives a radically God-centered life. Are we on the path after God? A.W. Tozer put it this way, Tozer. He says, as a sailor locates his position on the sea by shooting the sun... So we may get our moral bearings by looking at God. We get our moral bearings by looking at God. We must begin with God. We are right when and only when we stand in a right position relative to God. And we are wrong so far and so long as we stand in any other position. Are we in the right position looking to God? We're going to close in prayer. Following the prayer with this closing song, uh, the altars are open as always. And now, as I announced last week, we're going to have prayer workers uh, come up during the song. And if you would like prayer for anything, if the Lord has laid your, on your heart anything, you're welcome to come forward and they'd be more than happy to pray with you. Even after the closing song's over, they're more than happy to pray with you and eager to pray with you. Let's pray. Dearly Father, may we orient ourselves on you. May we pursue righteousness as, it, as Noah was righteous. May we do everything that you commanded us as Noah did. And of course, the first thing that we need to do is respond to your son, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And Lord God, if there's anyone here today who has not responded to you, confessing they're a sinner in need of a savior, believing, believing in you as the one and only savior, trusting in you and committing to you. May today be the day. And may they respond to you in a simple prayer such as, Lord Jesus, I confess I have sinned and missed your perfect standard. I believe in you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Today, Lord, I am trusting in you as Lord and Savior. Today, Lord, I'm committing my life to you. Please come into my life and help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. If you said that prayer uh, for salvation...
share with someone today. You know, angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents, and so should we. If you have questions about God or the spiritual life, never hesitate to talk to me. I'd love to talk to you. Amen.